Yeah, I can't do this without a cigarette yet. Oh my god. Hello, 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 everybody. <laughs> I got a joke for you. What do you call a sleepwalking nun? A Roman Catholic. <laughs> anyway. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, January 18, 2021. Can you believe it? We've made it through to a new year. Yay! <laughs> so depressing. Anyway, um, it is going on midday. It's 27 degrees, a little spicy, a little prickle of the sweat, you know? Um, humidity sitting comfortably at 45%. No forecast of rain today. It's going to be top of 33. It's going to be 19 tonight. Nice and balmy. No rain in sight. So I am cheering. There's also light winds. Uh, north, northeastly, it's up to 20 kilometers per hour in the afternoon. Um, and then a light breeze in the late evening. How lovely. Anyway, what a year it was. Am I right? <laughs> How is everyone doing? How was your Christmas? Your new year? How's the fam? Are the, you know, everyone treating you well? Um, you know, I'm doing adequately. I, I can't complain. So let's just leave it at that for now. <laughs> Thank you to all my new listeners. I know some, I, I am aware I mean, I haven't checked in here very often, but I'm aware that there are some new people that picked us up over the break and I appreciate it. And y'all old listeners, I thank you too for your patience while I muster the energy to do anything new. But uh, yeah, you know, that's um, that's all I really got right now. So let's get into the thing I want to talk about today. So here's the thing about sleepwalking. I don't sleepwalk. Um, I don't really know anyone that, no, I don't know anyone well that sleepwalks, but okay. <laughs> all right. Let me just tell you. All right. I have been a little bit hooked on the TikTok recently. I know it's very unbecoming of a over 30 year old woman, but there's this chick called Celine Spooky Boo. And I feel like she and I might be some sort of kindred spirit. We have a similar kind of chaotic energy. Uh, so, you know, I feel like we would probably fuck shit up. Anyway, she's been sharing these clips from her home CCTV uh, about of, of her sleepwalking. And there's also one of her and her brother sleepwalking at the same time. And apparently, because well, it's so fascinating, she triggers herself by eating cheese and chocolate. And for some reason, when she eats those things, that's what happens. She sleepwalks and she does some really funny things. And it's just, you know. It's just that kind of humor, whatever, whatever. But let us learn a little bit more about sleepwalking before I get into the story for today. So sleepwalking is also known as som- somnambulism. <laughs> yep. Anyway, somnambulism, it's a disorder of moving around whilst asleep, essentially. So they don't really know what the cause of sleepwalking is. And the only information they really have is that while it's more common in children, they reckon around one... Uh, no, four in 1,000 adults still sleepwalk, which is, that's a pretty, like, that's, that's a high amount of people, in my opinion. Anyway, so apparently, super, super common in children um, who usually outgrow it by the time they get into their teens. Um, and the way sleepwalking goes in the brain is that, like, say, one or two hours after you fall asleep at night, um, your brain just, like... Just do it. <laughs> so usually um, 
it's just like random. It's like a random harmless event. Um, they say treatment can be required if it occurs often or if it causes injury. They recommend medication or hypnosis. Occasionally, or what I should say, rarely, it does involve unusual behaviors like climbing out of a window or urinating in a wardrobe. <laughs> so I was looking around. I was like, what's the weirdest thing that's happened like <laughs> around here? sleepwalking wise and I hopped onto the Queensland health website literally the government website and they have this article about this chick she's 21 years old she lives in Brisbane and she's talking about how she had this like super dramatic experience earlier that year where she was trying to fall asleep and this gigantic cockroach fell on her face and I'm like you know what sis I hear you I hear you I hear cockroach legs like it doesn't ha- it hasn't happened in years um thankfully this house is like bug free almost um but if I even so much as like heard like a I don't know if you could hear that but like a like the little legs moving over shit yeah done done bet I'm out anyway so after this incident she started sleepwalking and (laughs) hasn't been able to stop since then so the article goes into some more details about how sleepwalking can run families and that it's uh in in predisposed people, sleepwalking usually is triggered during periods of stress or poor medical health, poor mental health. Um, and then they even go on to like more like <laughs> intense sleepwalking things like uh, sleep talking, sleep eating, sleep sex. All of these in a group of sleep disorders called parasomnias. So apparently it's thought that parasomnias are due to an incomplete dissociation of sleep and wakefulness which is like your brain is halfway between being awake and being asleep at night isn't that crazy anyway sleepwalking and all of those other parasomnias they they kind of come and go over time so they reckon focusing on your total overall body health your stress management um increasing the amount of time that you sleep will help settle things down (sighs) That's all fun and good. But during my Google search, I went down a little rabbit hole, as you do. And then I stumbled across an article about homicidal sleepwalking. I couldn't find any more recent reports, but up until the year of 2005, good Lord, that was actually quite a while ago now that I look at it. Anyway, up until 2005, there had only been about 69 cases reported in literature like criminal cases of homicidal sleepwalking right (laughs) crazy um but if you look at like american history it's littered with cases of sleepwalking killers um and most often it's men who wake up in the night kill their wife or kill their lover and then they're like yep i was sleepwalking i didn't mean to do it and i thought what better story to share (laughs) Then the best known historical case, which is that of Albert Tyrrell, who in 1845 killed his lover, Maria Bickford. All right, let me set the scene for you guys, okay? The 1840s was a time of like fashion that was influenced by like the Gothic revival. So think very, very um, like arches, angles, very sharp features. But also romanticism. So the whole 1840s vibe, fashionable, like it was, it's fashionable to be demure. 
but um, to have like a really harsh silhouette. So, you know, like the bodices that cut in, right? Um, the menswear was way more understated. <laughs> the bourgeois Victorian male becomes the fashion leader of that decade. But for the women, think, think of like bonnets and modestly dressed women with those corset looking things, um, like really, really inflexible bodices that you would have seen in 16th and century, 16th and 17th century fashion. Um yeah, all of those sorts of things. Um, they valued pale complexions as the most fashionable. And it was considered almost vulgar to appear too healthy. Like, <laughs> you had to have a bit of an unhealthy pallor. Anyway, literature of that time also portrays, like, a lot of sentimental, very uh, meek subservient female heroines who died for love or women so either that or you're a woman who was cold and cruel and you would cause heartbreak to the people who loved them in turn but anyway I digress back to Albert okay so Albert Jackson Tyrrells this dude he's born 1824 somewhere in America I think it's Massachusetts or something um his parents were Leonard and Abigail Tyrrell a fairly well-to-do, respectable family in the scene. Um, at the age of 18, so I think 1842, <laughs> my mouth is correct, um, he marries this lady named Orient. Orient Humphrey Terrell, her name is. What a name. Uh, and they have some kids. But this dude has grown up to be a bit of a womanizer. He has got an eye for the ladies, let me tell you. So... Sometime after his marriage, he starts messing around with this lady named Maria Bickford. Now, Maria, I think she's in her early 20s. I think she was 21 around that time. She is a woman who got married at 16 to a guy named James, I think. Um, They conceived a child, but they lost the child while the child was still in its infancy. So during her grieving period around all that, her friends come to console her and they're like, come to Boston with us. Just come to the city for a bit. I should mention she lives in Maine. (laughs) I have to Google the distance between those places because I'm not very good at US geography. I know it's in the same vicinity. Anyway. It's not like it's California. Anyway, wait, 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 wait. Anyway, so she's like, come to the city, you know, you're going to love it. Oh, my God. So she goes with them to Boston. She falls in love with the city. She's like, this is a vibe. You know what? I really love it here. And after she returns home briefly, she tells her husband, nah, I want to be in Boston. I'm going to go. I'm moving there. Like, that's it. I'm done. So she packs the things she moves to Boston and eventually she ends up finding work as a prostitute in a brothel so she tries at a couple of different brothels she moves around a little bit um during that time her husband uh poor James comes up to Boston to be like no wife come home live with me uh, but then when he finds out she's working as a prostitute he decides to call it quits and he goes back home to Maine so he's uh he's out of the picture more or less at some point uh Maria and Albert, remember the dude I mentioned before, uh, they meet. And these two individuals fall in love and it's a wild ride. They pretty much spend all their time together. There's there's some reports of um, Albert living, leaving his wife Orient and their kids with Maria when he went out to do other things. And... Albert just doesn't give a fuck. Like him and Maria are traveling around like husband and wife. They're using different names, causing a huge ruckus. And they just become notorious in the Boston scene 
for their lascivious behavior and you know they're off their super super passionate vibes and apparently often volatile behavior and I think I read in one of the articles that Marisa says she loved picking fights with Albert because the makeup was worth it (laughs) hell okay (laughs) anyway during this time um Tyrell's father passes away and so he and Maria are still carrying on this like super super up and down relationship and upon his father's death he his death I should say sorry he inherits eight thousand dollars um and this is like 1844 so they've been around for a bit I guess um and at that time you know the 1840s eight thousand is a of a lot of money so what did he do with it he squandered most of it pretty much all of it on maria um they stayed at all like the best hotels they lived the good life they're popping bubbly you know what i mean like they're literally living the good life um and during that time bigford was like <laughs> i ain't quitting my life as a working girl no way like she she from the looks of it i guess she really loved her job or she loved the the liberation of working as a prostitute um, and so Tyrrell wasn't really happy about that. Albert's just like, mm, I'm not into it. Apparently he was enraged by it. Some people say he was mildly disappointed. It's hard to say which one's more accurate. <clears throat> um, all this is still continuing. And eventually <laughs> in 1845, uh, he gets indicted on charges of adultery. Cause obviously he's still married to Orient and God knows what's going on over here. This dude manages to elude arrest for weeks. He he's moving place to place with Maria. Um, and then eventually they come across this house of ill repute um, owned by a dude named Joel Lawrence. So during this time, OK, wait, let me explain with the boarding house. So this boarding house that Joel has set up, I think he runs it with his wife. They call it this, like, this super sleazy boarding house where they charge exorbitant rent amounts to... Um, cohabitating unmarried couples is the way they they phrased it anyway uh so he and maria living there in sin (laughs) and during this time apparently bickford's written a letter to james her husband who had fled back to maine pretty much resolved in the fact that his wife's gone um and she's complaining about the way albert's been treating her so during this uh a huge fight breaks out between maria and albert and they break up um, and this is around about June 85, June 85, June 1845. But these two can't stay away from each other. They are like, they're like hooked on each other. They love each other so much. Um, and then by October, they're back together, more or less. So, uh, Maria was living in that boarding house and Albert goes to visit her and, Apparently, the around about the the morning after he's visited her, um, Joel and his wife hear a shriek and then a thud from upstairs, followed by the sound of someone running down the stairs and out the door. Um, they don't see who it is, but they decide to go into Maria's room and boom, boom. They are absolutely horrified by what they see. So Maria's body is lying on the floor. Um, her throat has been savagely sliced, like her windpipe, her jugular, all severed. Um, the wound, in t- like in its entirety, was 
six inches long and it was about three inches deep. So like this is like a full hacking at the throat. Uh, they found the murder weapon, which was a bloodstained razor at the foot of her bed. Um, and then what looks like has happened is that the murderer has apparently tried to set fire to the bed. Um, I don't know, I guess to cover shit up or cover up the crime, whatever. Um, and the fire that was set to the bed has singed Marie's hair and some of her skin was charred. Um, there was also a bloodstained vest and a cane um, that belonged to a gentleman who had been in the room. So <laughs> let the murder investigation begin. Um, from what they say, like they try to sort out the timeline, right? They call the police, whatever. And everyone can confirm they've seen Albert going into Marie's room, um, but they never saw him leave. And they don't know it was him that ran out the door. And now he's nowhere to be found. <laughs> he gone. He legged it. So if I find out eventually, Albert, yeah, totally is 100% on the run. Um, the, you know, the cops are doing their investigations. Um, they go down to the stable owner and they confirm that uh, Albert had asked for a horse at about 5.30 a.m. Because um, he needed to go see his father-in-law because his father-in-law was a bit of difficulty. I actually don't know where his wife Orient and the kids are at this point, to be honest with you. I think she's probably just given up and gone home. Um, so then, uh, I keep calling my surname, Albert. Um, he goes back to the place that he lives in Boston. So he leaves Boston City and he goes back to his hometown. Um, from there, he dips to Canada. <laughs> Boom, he's over the border. Once in Montreal, he boards a boat that's bound for Liverpool, England. <laughs> But at this point, the weather is so bad that the boat has to turn back to Canada. So he dips from Montreal, flees to New York City, and then he boards a boat down south to New Orleans. At this point, everyone's like, this guy is the murderer. He's on the run. He's flagged as a wanted man. The authorities in Louisiana, Louisiana, um, they're waiting for him. And then Albert finally gets arrested December 5th of 1845. So the murder was October 27th. This is how long this dude's been running. Um, and, you know, during this period where he's like back and forth thing, trying to escape the country, um, the public opinion was like 100% against him. They're like, he's a fugitive. You know, this murder was brutal. We want uh, every, everyone in Boston was pretty much, we want the killer be caught and brought to justice, killed one of our girls. And then something happened. Um, it all turned. It all turned. A very, very strange thing happened. In the months between his arrest and then the beginning of the trial, um, the public switches their opinion and they start becoming sympathetic towards Albert. They're like, he was seduced by that she devil. <laughs> and so they're like, that poor bugger. Oh, it couldn't have been him. I don't even know how that works in, your, in their heads, whatever. So apparently Maria's reputation pretty much sullied like the, the spin on the story of um, Albert being this like terrible, horrible man. And they're pretty much just saying that she deserved it because she a hoe. That's pretty much the gist of it. Anyway, so the trial starts um, towards the end of March 1846. Um, the prosecutors have some evidence, 
Uh, but it's all circumstantial evidence. Very strong circumstantial evidence. Um, they had people who could testify to their affair. They could place Albert at the, um, the scene of the crime on the night of the murder. But, you know, no eyewitnesses. So, see how we go. Then, enter former United States Senator Rufus Choate as his defense counsel. And if you see this guy's face, ooh. <laughs> He looks like he's one stern looking motherfucker. Let me tell you, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Hang on a second. <coughs> Excuse me. Boost juice. <coughs> it's running out. All right. Back to Rufus Choate. So Rufus, um, he has a junior, uh, what do you call him? A junior count, junior legal counselor. Something like that. That's the word I'm thinking of. Junior counsel. Anyway, he has this junior counsel. Um, it's Anise Merrill. Anyway, uh, Merrill is the junior counsel for Choate. Yes, <laughs> I'm back on track. Sorry, guys. So prosecutors have had their turn. Uh, Merrill is brought in to do the opening statement. And the first thing they do is they start casting doubt on the testimony Um Pretty much saying that the prosecution's witnesses are unreliable. They bring in character witnesses who all swear that Albert is a good and honorable man. You know, they try to paint a different story, um, paint him in a different light. And they try to sort of shift the narrative. Maybe Maria tried to commit suicide. Maybe someone else was in the room. Um, Apparently they bring up a story where... Uh, There's an incident where Joel Lawrence, the guy who owns that shady boarding place, uh, tried to keep his cops out of room or something like he was acting sus. He didn't want to let anyone in the room. Anyway, and uh, Meryl's making this opening argument for the defense and they pretty much just shit all over Maria's character because, you know, because she's a working girl, she can't possibly have any value. Wow. Anyway, um. So yeah, they're repeating the possibility. She cut her own throat. They posit that suicide is almost, (laughs) literally says a direct quote, um, that suicide was, quote, almost the natural death of persons of her character, unquote. Literally, that's what they said. Um, Then they go on to say Albert had been this like super honorable, upstanding gentleman until he met the deceased. Um, this is another quote. She had succeeded in a wonderful manner. <laughs> she had succeeded in a wonderful manner in ensnaring the prisoner. That's what they insisted upon. Um, the other quote was, his love for her was passing the love ordinarily borne by men for women. She, for a long time, had held him spellbound by her depraved and lascivious arts. You know, because they can't possibly blame the dude for being drunk on the pussy. That's just not possible. It's it's, it's the woman's fault, obviously. Fuck's sake. So... They set up this whole narrative that she's like a less than desirable human being. She's a scum, whatever. And pretty much set up a story that Albert is a chronic sleepwalker. And they suggest that he's committed the act while in a sleeping state, which meant he couldn't possibly be held for his res- possibly be responsible for his actions. And this is the first time this kind of defense is used in American legal history. This is where it all started. The 69 cases between this time and 2005 are because 
Choate, Rufus Choate, brought this in for defense of Albert Tyrrell. And so let's see what happened. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Um, pretty much once Choate introduces the sleepwalking defense, um, they bring Albert's family and friends in to testify and then all of them recount you know uh strange albert's strange behavior while he's asleep and according to all these witnesses albert was a chronic sleepwalker and had been since um he was a child since like six years old or something and apparently the the sleepwalking incidents became more and more frequent and more severe as he grew older they even had a cousin that came in um that claimed that uh, a year prior in September 1845 Albert had pulled him out of bed and threatened him with a knife all while he was asleep then Merrill's back on the line uh you know discussing the issue of somnambulism of sleepwalking and he's pretty much acknowledging that it's a peculiar and novel line of defense but hey alexander the great penned a battle in his sleep la fontaine wrote some of his best verses while in the same unconscious state condolec made calculations even franklin was known to have arose and finished in his sleep a work that he had projected before going to bed Evidence will be produced to show that it had pleased Almighty God to afflict the prisoner with this species of mental derangement. Direct quotes. <laughs> so, if that's not it, they also get this guy called Walter Chatting. He's the dean of Harvard, the Harvard Medical School. They call him in to testify. Like, dude, is it possible for someone to wake up in a somnambulistic state, get dressed, commit murder, set fire to a room and make his escape? Walter says, yes, it's possible. And then on day four of the trial, Choate is like, time to lay it down. We're going to bring these proceedings to a close. And he promises he's not going to keep the jury waiting. <laughs> he's not going to do it. But then speaks for five hours before he has a break. And then he has another 90 minute closing speech. He stands and talks at them for half a day. And he uses his time to ridicule the prosecution's case and, you know, re-embellish and reiterate the sleepwalking defense. Then, finally, on the 28th of March, the judge speaks for about 90 minutes and it becomes clear that Choate's defense is successful and the judge reminds the jury about Bickford's life as a prostitute I mean Bickford I say Maria's life and suggested that sonambulism was a form of insanity um so the jury go away and deliberate for two hours they return their verdict not guilty everyone is cheering Albert's crying tears of relief the courtroom was like whoa (laughs) whoa so fucked up anyway um but, so that's just a murder charge, right? Albert still has to face charges of arson because it's a capital crime in Boston at, back at that time. And Choate used uh, the sonambulism defense to secure another acquittal for the arson. And then the judge ends up sentencing him, uh, I think it was to three years hard labor for the crimes of adultery and lascivious cohabitation. So cheating on his wife and living with another woman that wasn't his wife. He did three years hard labor. All this, right? Acquitted of murder, acquitted of arson, cheats on his wife, lives with another woman, three years hard labor. And then how does he show his appreciation to Choate, the guy who literally got him out of these charges? (laughs) He writes a letter to Rufus 
demanding half of his legal fees back as a refund because it had been too easy for Choate to persuade the jury that he was innocent. <clears throat> yep. Anyway, um, that was pretty much the end of the story. Albert ends up living... He, he went back to... His wife took him back. More of... <laughs> Of all the things that happened, his wife takes him back and he pretty much lives the rest of his life in anonymity and then dies in 1880. I think he was in his mid 50s or something. So, you know, I mean, I mean, was he a killer? Was he an actual sleepwalker? I mean, only him and his baby, maybe his defense team will, will know if he actually killed Maria while sleepwalking or if it was just cold blooded murder. So, you know, there you have it. Albert Tyrrell, sleepwalking murderer, or, you know, dude who got lucky with a big brain lawyer who managed to solve a case. What do you think? <laughs> I, honestly, I don't know. Anyway, that's all for today. Happy New Year, my friends. Hope you have a lovely week. Stay curious. Find me on my Instagram at Mercurial Podcast or email me at mercurial.podcast at gmail.com. Um, one final share for the week if you get the chance there is this artist on spotify his name is ninjoy he has a track called misty he has also many 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 other amazing musics but specifically his chess is one of his perfect jazz hip-hop mellow instrumental tracks that i adore excellent background music super relaxing please go check him out i think it's amazing anyway it's by my um yeah thanks for being here and uh bye bye <laughs>